The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to take your Bibles, if you would please, and open them to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 23. And we're going to look at this passage again today, and uh, we will also next week, hopefully, to uh, finish up most of it. Uh, On the 13th of next month, uh, actually, we will conclude chapter 23 in Matthew with a sermon that I think is very, very important uh, for everyone to hear. So make plans for that. Make plans for Easter. Uh, As a matter of fact, let's just do this. Let's make plans to be here on Sundays. that, That help you out? Okay, let's do that. So Matthew chapter 23, and I suppose that this is really one of the most difficult texts that there is to preach in all of the Bible, at least for us as preachers who really want to get at the heart of the matter of what Jesus is saying here. This is very difficult for us to preach. Uh, In fact, this is something that's not going to make you popular with the ministerial association. Uh, If you preach this passage in truth, then... It might be best for you just to skip over it and act as it isn't there, if it is, as if it isn't there. Uh, but you know that I can't do that. I don't have the luxury of skipping Scripture because I have committed myself to preach through every verse that we have in the book of Matthew. And so over this long, long period of time of six years, that's what we've been doing, looking at every verse in the book of Matthew. And so if I were to skip over chapter 23 and take you to chapter 24, where maybe with just a light brush on what we find here, then you would say, ah, there's something that he's hiding from us. He doesn't really want to talk to us about chapter 23, but I don't want to do that. I think the Lord of God, all, all of it needs to be taught. It's difficult here in this 23rd chapter because there aren't a whole lot of positive things to say. Here is a rebuke of false religion. It's a rebuke of the fakery that goes on in churches today where pastors, teachers, preachers do not preach the Word of God in truth. Now, it would be easy, the easiest thing for us to do would be to ignore the problem, just act like it doesn't exist, but I don't think that's what Jesus wants us to do. He had a method of dealing with false teachers, and I think that he expects us to use that same method. And so you find that Jesus taught the apostles to say the same things that he said, to teach in the same manner. And so later they came and they spoke to the same scribes and Pharisees that we find in this particular passage of Scripture. They spoke to them in the same way, and it wasn't popular when they said it to them. And The apostles said that false teachers teach what they call damnable heresies. Now, as we did last week, I'm going to forgo the reading of the entire text at uh, at once. It's very long. And so we're just going to read as we go along and explain as we go along to see what Jesus would have us to know about false teachers and how to deal with them. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the time we have to gather together today. Help us as we look into this uh, chapter and the words that Jesus spoke, and may we teach them in the same truth that he told. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I've titled these messages, Woes and Warnings, and this is because of eight woes that Jesus pronounced on the religious leaders of his time. He said, woe 
unto you. Eight times he said to them, Woe. And each of these times he brought out some act of evil that he was perpetrate, they were perpetrating upon the people. He said, Woe. And that's our English word, but it's not really a word that translates very easily out of the original languages because this word is actually like a groan. But it's not a groan of anger. And it's not a groan of hatred, but it's really a groan of sorrow. That Jesus' heart was broken as he had to bring these things before the people and accuse these religious leaders. And he groans about this. He sorrows over it because they had been so long rejecting the truths that he told. And we see that as we come down to verse number, uh, in verse number, uh, I believe it's verse number 37. Verse 37 that Jesus says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets. And he goes on and he says, I really want you to come to me. I would have gathered you under my wings, but you wouldn't do it. And so these are words of woe because Jesus wanted them to come to him. They, he wanted them to turn to him, but they wouldn't do it. Now, what I've done to help us to outline the passage is to look at the eight woes. Those become the points of the message these eight woes, and we only had time to examine just one of them last week, and that's the first woe that we find in verse number 13, where Jesus said, But woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for ye neither go in yourselves, neither suffer ye that are entering to go in. And that was the woe of shutting up salvation. This is the woe of telling people that there is some other way that they can get to heaven aside from Jesus Christ. And for the scribes and the Pharisees, the method that they tried to use, the method of salvation was simply strict compliance to the laws of God. That means trying to do the very best that I can, trying to be a good person, trying to live by the laws of God, and if I can live that way, then I can be acceptable with God. Now, what that is, is a system of self-righteousness. And what self-righteousness does is always lower God's standards rather than elevating them. Now, although that way is hard, that way is actually impossible, it actually becomes the preferred method of salvation of all people. This is the way people think that you go to heaven. This is the natural way to think that if I will be good and do good things, I'll be able to go to heaven. But the, the way, this particular way, is impossible because it has a fundamental flaw. And the fundamental flaw is that God says that anyone who's going to be saved by doing good things has to do good things all the time. One who is going to be saved by doing good things must be a perfect person. And that's because God's standard is perfection as he is perfect. And unless you are seriously deluding yourself, you know that you aren't perfect. And so that's the reason that we need Christ. He saves us from this requirement of personal perfection as he becomes perfection for us. You see, when you trust Christ as your Savior, he stands good for your imperfection by substituting his perfect, righteous life for yours. And so he pays for all of your sins, everything that you have committed, and he takes that upon himself, and that's what he did through the sacrifice that he made on the cross. But in spite of that, there are many people who say that you don't really need Christ. Even among evangelical preachers today, it's popular to say that Christ is not really necessary, 
God's grace can cover all of your sins, even if you never believe in Christ. God's grace is wide enough, his mercy is big enough that you don't really have to believe in him. All that you really need to do is be sincere about the thing that you do believe in. And so they teach that sincerity is the way to go to heaven. Uh, Be sincere in trying to do what's right, which, as you ought to recognize very easily, is just a little bit of a twist, just a little bit of a variation upon the pharisaical system. It's still a dependence upon self-righteousness. Well, that way of salvation is not what the Bible says. It's not what Jesus said, not what the apostles said. I'm reminded of a conversation that the apostle Peter had with Cornelius. And you remember Cornelius was a man who was a, the Bible says he was a man who was seeking for God. He's a just man. He's looking for God. He's trying to do the very best that he can. And Peter came and preached to him. And he said to him in Acts chapter 10, And he commanded us to preach unto the people and testify that it is he, that is Jesus Christ, it is he which was ordained of God to be the judge of the quick and dead. To him give all the prophets witness that through his name, whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins. And so here was Peter preaching to a most sincere man. And he told him that the forgiveness of his sins came by believing in Jesus. So Jesus said, woe to these Pharisees because they were keeping people away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. They had actually shut up the way of heaven by saying, you don't really need Jesus. We have another way that you can come. There is another way that you can get to heaven. And Jesus said what they do is they're keeping people out of heaven. And so whenever you Believe a preacher that says you don't need to be born again. Just be sincere about what you believe. That is a preacher who's shutting up the way of salvation. You'll never get to heaven by believing what he says. So that's the first woe. And it's the same problem that's going on today. In churches that call themselves Christian today. Now we move on then to verse number 14. And Jesus says, Woe unto you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, For ye devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayer. Therefore, ye shall receive greater damnation. Woe number two is the woe of religion for riches. This is the practice of religion for personal gain. I don't think we need to spend a lot of time here. We all have TVs. We've all heard this. We've all seen this that there are preachers everywhere, it seems like, that beg for money and they promise riches to people who send in money to their ministries. A few weeks ago, I was watching John Hagee, who is one of the popular preachers today, and he made a statement in which he said that God wants you to be wealthy because if you're not wealthy, then you can't do very much for the kingdom of God. And so Mr. Hagee promised that if you would plant your seeds and you would send in your money, then God will prosper you. And that kind of preaching goes on all over, uh, all over the place. I, I suppose that on TBN, the, the Trinity Broadcasting Network, that nine out of ten preachers on there have some form of this type of teaching, and so they make wealth their kingdom strategy. And we all know who gets rich in that scheme because there have been many exposés of those ministries in which preachers are living in wealth and people are wallowing in their misery. And the people want to be rich. That's their desire, but they don't ever seem to get there. 
And the reason that they don't is because what those preachers teach is a lie. The preacher is after the pocketbook. And this is exactly what the Pharisees did. They're the, they're the forerunners of that kind of a system because they look for the same thing. They, they tried to steal money. And they, would, they attacked or they targeted widows. They would ingratiate, ingratiate themselves with widows in order to get their hands on the money that was in their estates. And that's not any different than the way that people work today. I mean, how many times have you read in your paper about a widow who's been scammed out of her money? And when people get older, they, they may not be able to guard their money as closely as, as they would before. And, and, they, and they're a trusting of people. And so when someone comes along and wins their confidence, it's not very long before you find out they're stealing that person's money. And that's what the Pharisees did. But they mask all of that. All of that. They mask it by pretending that they were holy men. These are the preachers of God. These are the men of God. And so they would stand and they would make their long prayers in front of the people. And they nudge up close to somebody. And while they're making that long prayer, they're reaching around their back to get into their pocketbook and stealing their money from them. And that, in effect, is what the preachers in the Word of Faith movement do. They read from the Bible and they twist the Scriptures and they make people think that they're holy, that they are real holy men of God. They're all about God. And they talk about how they want to change people's lives, but the only life that ever gets changed is theirs. And that's because they started in a cardboard box somewhere, and because of this thriving prosperity gospel that they preach, they've now become millionaires. Now, let's ask that question. Is it true that you can't do very much for God unless you're rich? Do you have to be a wealthy person to do something for God? Well, I think that we'd have to look at the apostles, wouldn't we? Uh, We'd have to look at their example. They had no money. They didn't have any grand estates. The apostle Paul is often talking about how he had to take up money for the church that was in Jerusalem because they were so poor. And the churches that he took money from were Gentile churches that had mostly slaves in them or a great number of them were slaves. They didn't have any money. And so you have two groups of very poor Christians, the Gentile churches and the Jewish church that's in Jerusalem. And these churches together did what? They turned the world upside down with the gospel of Jesus Christ. You don't have to be wealthy to do great things for God. All you have to do is trust God, believe in God, and he does the work himself. Now you see the difference between the prosperity gospel and the real gospel is actually the focus The prosperity gospel focuses on you and it focuses on the preachers and it focuses on the wealth that's to be gained whereas the focus of the real gospel is one person and that's Jesus Christ. The focus of the real gospel is always on him. And we do know that there's a promise that's involved with it because the Bible says that when we trust in him there will be riches But it's not the material gain of this world. There are going to be riches, but those things come when we've gone to heaven to be with him. And he's laying up in store for us all of these wonderful things. And he promises, yes, you will be rich. But he never said that's going to happen in this life. And so the focus is on Jesus Christ and we keep the focus there. And so what God wants you to do is to spend all of your efforts, not on trying to get rich, not on trying to increase your wealth in the world, but rather to to spend your time glorifying Christ and worshiping Christ and bringing others to him who will also glorify Christ. Get new converts. Work on new converts. Put your focus there. 
And so what we see here is a sigh of grief that goes on, goes up because of what has happened in Christian churches today with this gospel of prosperity or a gospel of riches. All of that is the ruse of deceit and what Jesus promised for it was damnation. He said, therefore ye shall receive the greater damnation. Now we go on then to verse number 15. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye compass sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he is made, ye make him twofold more the child of hell than yourselves. Our third woe is the woe of making corrupt converts. And I find this to be a very interesting characteristic of first century Pharisees. They weren't really known for being evangelistic people. Today, the Jews don't evangelize. And of course, we know that evangelize means to preach the gospel. They don't believe in preaching the gospel. So you understand the activity, though. And so we might better say that the Jews don't proselytize. You don't find the Jews proselytizing. In fact, in our time, the Jews don't want their people to proselytize others. And they don't want Christians to come to them with the gospel of Christ. They don't want to hear that. And I'm guessing that there is no one in this congregation today that has ever had someone come to your door and say, well, I, I am a Jewish person and I attend the synagogue in Ronard Park and I would like to know, have you dedicated your life to Jehovah? Has anybody ever had a Jew come to your house and say that to you? No. The Jews don't, eat, don't proselytize. You're not going to go to the mall and one of them hand you a tract that talks about their religion, their faith, and ask you to believe what they believe. They're not going to do that because they don't proselytize. But things were not like that in the first century. The Pharisees were very vigorous proselytizers. They were trying to get other people. In fact, Jesus says here, they are so vigorous at this that what they will do is they'll cross sea and land to make one convert. Well, why did they do that? Why Why were, there, were they asking people of other faiths to become Jews? And I can tell you that it was not because they wanted them to be disciples of Jehovah. No, the plan here is they want to make more Pharisees. Make disciples of Pharisees. They want people like them. They wanted more legalistic, meticulous nitpickers who interpreted the laws of God as they did. Now, you may remember in another message I said there was only about 6,000 of these Pharisees that were in Israel. And so what they were seeking was to have a bigger influence. They wanted more of them. So this is all about making Pharisees and not about making children of God. Now, of course, today we have some people that are very zealous about proselytizing. That goes on all the time. The cults are very active in it. Multiple times... A Mormon or, Jehovah, or Mormons or Jehovah Witnesses will come to your house. And you know, just, just as an aside to that, that uh, Muhammad was a very zealous proselytizer. Now, he had a harsh method. Uh, convert from being an infidel, lose your head. And that can be very convincing. And so that helped Islam to spread across the whole world with that unique outreach program. But the cults... The cults certainly do know this, or they're busy with this. They're making converts. But you notice that what Jesus, what Jesus says about people that are drawn in by false beliefs. He says they become twofold more the children of hell. And what he says there is what often happens. Many times the converts become more zealous than the people that converted them. 
You go back in history and you look at Joseph Smith who started the Mormons. I don't think that he had any idea that there would be as many Mormons as there are today. There are 14 million Mormons across the world. And if you remember what the Mormons did, they kind of tried to split off from everybody. They went to Utah and uh, they, they you know, wanted to have their own colonization out in Utah and they really didn't want anybody to bother them. But today you have 14 million Mormons because they were so vigorous about proselytizing. And Joseph Smith, I don't think, had any idea about that. And then you have William Taze Russell who began the Jehovah Witnesses. And he said in the beginning that there's only going to be 144,000 Jehovah Witnesses. And then when that's done, then the world is going to end. But the converts were very zealous and soon they overshot the goal. And so there's now more than 144,000 Jehovah Witnesses, so they had to change the whole plan about what's going to happen in order to take in all the Jehovah Witnesses that have been made. So the converts can actually become worse than the ones that converted them, the ones that convinced them to come over to the dark side, or the darker side, I might say, convinced them to come to their side. But look at Jesus' language here. He says, you make them twofold more the child of hell, than you. And that's a very interesting comment, especially for JWs who don't believe in hell, but that would be a very interesting comment. And what we have to do here is to give Jesus his due, and and that is he is a preacher who believed in hell. Well, the original word that's used here in the Greek is the word Gehenna. And that's a very graphic word that would have struck a chord of immediate recognition with his audience. And that's because it referred to a valley that was outside of Jerusalem called the Valley of Hinnom. And that valley had a horrible past. In the Old Testament times, Israel left the worship of Jehovah God and they started worshiping the God of the heathens and particularly a God by the name of Molech. And one of the acts of devotion to Molech was human sacrifice. And so the people would take their children into the valley of Hinnom and they would burn them on the altars of Molech. And that was a despicable, gruesome practice, just about as low as you can go on the scale of human depravity. And Israel was involved in that. But here in the New Testament times, the Jews would never think of doing anything like that. Now they're strictly monotheistic. They're trying to stay away from all false gods and they claim that they're worshiping Jehovah God. But this place where all of that took place was an abomination to them. They weren't going to set foot in the Valley of Hinnom. That was a very wicked place. They knew the sacrifices that were made there. And you know how the Jews are always worried about being defiled. And so they weren't going to go out in the Valley of Hinnom to do anything. It's a valley that was polluted. For centuries, human sacrifices were made there and the stink of burning human flesh went up in the idolatry of these false gods. And so they considered that to be an unsanctified, unholy place. They weren't going into that valley. But the valley was there. And so what were they going to do with it? Well, it's no good for habitation. They're not going to, call, they're not going to build houses and apartment buildings there. So what do they do? Well, they made it the garbage dump for Jerusalem. All the filth and the waste of the city was taken out there and carried into the valley and thrown in. And they would set that garbage on fire and they would burn it. And since garbage is a perpetual thing, as you well know, those fires never went out. There was always a fire that was burning in the valley of Hinnom. And the smoke of that fire continually rose up into the air. 
And so with all the filth and the nastiness of that place, you can imagine how terrible that it was that there were worms and maggots that crawled all over the garbage on the edges of that fire. And the fire is always going, always burning. Now keep that in mind. And I'd like you to turn over to the book of Mark chapter 9. The valley of Hinnom and the fires that are burning there. This is what they have on their mind. So in Mark chapter 9... Jesus says something about this. And interestingly here, he's speaking in the chapter about the danger of offending people who have trusted in him. See, there are some people who try to snatch the gospel away before a person believes. And then there are others who make it their business to harass those who have believed. And so Jesus warns about them. And look what he says in Mark 9, beginning in verse 42. He says, And whosoever shall offend one of these little ones that believe in me... It is better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and he were cast into the sea. And if thy hand offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched, where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. And if thy foot offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter halt into life than having two feet to be cast into hell into the fire that never shall be quenched, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out. It is better for thee to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. And you see all of the references to hell fire? That's the same word, Gehenna. The same word that Jesus uses in Matthew chapter 23. And do you know why the fire is never quenched? Why the fire never goes up? Because hell is a place of eternal torment. Revelation says that the smoke of the torment of hell goes up forever and ever. And do you see here the worms that don't die? All of those are graphic references to what the people could see right outside the city of Jerusalem. And Jesus said, this is what hell is like. And he said, false teachers make their converts twofold more the children of hell. Now, here's the important thing to get from this, that people that die without Jesus Christ go to hell. It's not popular for us to preach that. People say, we don't really need to do that. We don't need to preach it. And if you preach hell, you're some kind of a weird fanatic. But we're no more fanatical about this subject than Jesus himself was because he preached that there is a hell. And so it makes you wonder sometimes, how, how do we have these Christian churches today where people are so unlike Christ? And how do you have preachers who say that we're preachers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we say what Jesus said. We taught what Jesus taught. And yet they stay completely away from the subject of hell. How can they claim to be Christian ministers and not teach what Jesus taught? And so you have to wonder, how can you be a Christian and be so unlike Christ? I mean, that's an impossible thing. Hell is a fundamental teaching of the Bible. And God wants you to know that hell exists. People need to know that hell is not just separation from God, as evangelicals now teach, but hell is a place with a burning fire or something much worse than fire as we know it. People need to know that they're going to go there if they don't believe in Jesus. 
You see, last week we were talking about the preacher that shuts up heaven. He denies people the true gospel of Christ. And this is what happens to those people. I said that it's not benign, and it's not benign. Those people that die without Jesus Christ, they don't stay on earth in a grave. They go someplace. They go to the eternal fires of hell. And so God wants us to tell people about this, and I'm not doing anyone any favors if I say that hell is an unpopular topic, so I'm just going to stay away from that. Charles Spurgeon said, If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions, and let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. Well, the Bible is very clear about hell. People need to know this in order to be saved. They need to know what they're being saved from. This is what gives salvation and the goodness of God and what Christ did on Calvary. The context. There is no context for salvation if we don't know about hell. So what are you being saved from? If there is no hell, then what are you being saved from? If there is no hell, I don't need to preach. Well, I've got things I can do. I can spend my time frolicking and rolling around because I don't need to preach if there is no hell. But hell exists. The good man, Jesus Christ, said that hell is real. And Jesus always told the truth. And if you believe that Jesus told the truth, then you better get busy listening to the truths that Jesus told. So Jesus said, or talked about hell, and he pronounced a woe here, a judgment on people that are so zealous to make new converts to their cause, but they make false converts. And he's not just talking about hell. Mormons, the cults, the Jehovah Witnesses, and people like that. I'm, I'm telling you today that he's also speaking about those who preach that prosperity gospel on television today. He's also talking about the sacramentarian gospel, the one that says that you need rosaries and you need masses and you need baptisms in order to save you. All those teachings lead people into hell. And you might not like me saying that, but that's what the Word of God teaches. Well, we go on further. Jesus is hitting these practices hard because top to bottom, the teachings were full of hypocrisy. So we look at verses 16 to 22, and he says, Woe unto you, ye blind guides, which say, Whosoever shall swear by the temple, it is nothing, but whosoever shall swear by the gold of the temple, he is a debtor. Ye fools and blind, for whether is greater the gold or the temple that sanctifieth the gold? And whosoever shall swear by the altar, it is nothing. But whosoever sweareth by the gift that is upon it, he is guilty. Ye fools and blind, for whether is greater the gift or the altar that sanctifieth the gift? Whoso therefore shall swear by the altar, sweareth by it and by all things thereon. And whoso shall swear by the temple, sweareth by it and by him that dwelleth therein. And he that shall swear by heaven, sweareth by the throne of God, and by him that sitteth thereon. So we have the woe of shutting up salvation, and the woe of religion for riches, and the woe of making corrupt converts, and fourthly we have the woe of pardoning prevarication. What is prevarication? My wife's looking at me right now. She says, you, you use too many big words. 
What is prevarication? Well, that simply means a lie. The Pharisees were good at lying, but they didn't call it lying. I know this, this particular section might be a little bit confusing to you, so let me see if I can help you to sort this out. The Pharisees were masters at evading the truth. In their everyday dealings with people, they would just as soon lie to you as to look at you. And you would think, well, how is that possible? I mean, here are people that they're trying to be saved by the law. I mean, they've already said that the law is the way that you get to heaven. The law is the way that makes everything right. So how could you possibly be a liar? How can you tell lies and be on your way to heaven? Isn't lying one of the ten big ones? And it is. Commandment number nine teaches us that we aren't to lie. But it's because people often lie that we have a legal system that requires you to swear an oath not to lie when you take the witness stand. Because people often lie, we have a legal system that says you must swear an oath to the allegiance, uh, allegiance to the United States before you can become a naturalized citizen. Because people often lie, we have a system that says that the president has to swear an oath to uphold the, the laws of the United States and to protect the Constitution of the United States. And because people often lie, we have an, an oath for the armed forces that says we will defend the, the United States of America against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And you get the picture with that. We often lie. And so we have this system where we swear oaths. People are just used to lying. James had something to say about that in James chapter 5. He said, but above all things, my brethren, swear not, neither by heaven, neither by the earth, neither by any, uh, any other oath, but let your yea be yea and your nay nay, lest ye fall into condemnation. He's just saying to us, we really shouldn't have to use O's. We should just be honest. Be honest people and be honest people all of the time so that our word, when we speak, that is our bond. And at least between Christians, none of us should ever have to say to another one, I swear on a stack of Bibles that this is true. We shouldn't have to do that. But what the Pharisees had done was they had developed a system of O's that allowed them to lie while at the same time claimed that they weren't liars. Now, they knew if they lied that it was going to break God's law, so they figured out a way to get around it, how they can be liars without being liars. And so what they did was to create a type of reasoning that undermines the truth. And we can expect that from people that pervert the gospel. Liars take their cue from the father of all lies, and that's the devil. And nobody likes a liar. I mean, you don't want an admitted liar to be the pastor of your church, certainly not. You don't want an admitted liar to be, your, to be the leader of your synagogue. And so the Pharisees figured out this way to cover their tracks. If you're going to be a liar, you've got to cover your tracks. And the way that the Pharisees did this was to make binding oaths and non-binding oaths. A non-binding oath is when you make a promise, but you cross your fingers behind your back. I know that sounds kind of childish, but the Pharisees had figured out a way to do this. They would tell somebody something, and they figured out a way to cross their fingers so they wouldn't have to tell the truth. And so this is what they did. They said, if you swear by the temple, then that doesn't count. But if you swear by the gold that's in the temple, then you have to keep the oath. If you swear by the altar, that doesn't count. You don't have to tell the truth in that case. But if you swear by the sacrifice that is on the altar, then that's different. You must keep that promise. 
And one of the things they did was to swear vows in which they said, we're going to give all of our money to God. And so if someone came to them asking for help, some poor destitute person or even their own parents, and their parents came and said, we need your help, we need some money. And they would say, oh, I'm sorry, I'd love to help you, but you know that I can't, and that's because I've sworn to give all of my money to God. But they never did give their money to God, but they weren't lying when they said they were going to. How is that possible? Well, it's because they had sworn one of their non-binding oaths. So they look holy, they pretend to be holy, but they're actually liars. They've just found a way of avoiding calling lies, lies. And what Jesus did in this text was to point out how illogical that it was. It's illogical to say that the temple is, is greater than the gold. It's the temple that sanctifies the gold. The temple belongs to God. So, of course, the temple is greater than the gold that it sanctifies. And then the altar. How is the gift on the altar greater than the altar? There's not a gift if not for the altar. So it's the altar that actually sanctifies the gift. But what he's doing here is just pointing out how illogical that their reasoning was. And he's just simply saying to them, you guys are a bunch of idiots. These are idiotic rules. And that's the same kind of thing that I would like to say to some of the ridiculous interpretations that we hear from pulpits today about the Word of God. I just love to stand up and say, you're just an idiot. I mean, you just don't know what you're talking about. You are, you, you are an idiot. And this is what false teachers do. They lie and they claim that they're telling the truth and they're really just a bunch of morons. And it makes you scratch your head at some of the things that they say, Joyce Meyer and Joel Osteen. Look at verses 20 and 22 again. He said, Whoso therefore shall swear by the altar, sweareth by it and by all things thereon. And whoso shall swear by the temple, sweareth by it and by him that dwelleth therein. And he that shall swear by heaven, sweareth by the throne of God and by him that sitteth thereon. Here's the point. God rules over all. That everything that you touch is something that's been given by God. God controls it all. He's sovereign over all. He's the ultimate source. And so if you swear by anything, what you've done is you've just brought God into the picture. And any time that you lie, you're slapping God. Now back in verse, or back in chapter 5, Jesus said, Don't bother to swear by anything. There's no point in doing that. Just tell the truth because God holds you accountable whether you make an oath or you don't make an oath. So it comes down to this. Those that are leaders are responsible to tell people the truth. Those that are in charge of the spiritual welfare of the people, they better not be lying to them. But that's what false teachers do. They lie. Isn't that what they're doing? When they shut up heaven by preaching a false gospel? Isn't that what they're doing when they say that there is another way to heaven than what we find in the Bible? Isn't that what they're doing when they make a false convert and tell them, hey, you're going to heaven, but they really made them the child of hell? And isn't that the issue when they say, send in your money to us so that we can keep preaching because people are starving and we need to help them? And then you find out, as I reported to you a couple of weeks ago, that one of the ministries took in $50 million in a year and spent $348 in benevolent spending. Isn't that lying? Uh, do you call that lying? God calls it lying. So there's not a nice way to put it. Jesus made it very clear. There are liars and there is a price for telling lies. 
And it's not a new problem. It's the same old stuff that has afflicted Christianity for 2,000 years. Now, here's the thing, folks. False teachers do not go away. And you know what happens when you let one weed grow in your garden and you don't go out there and you dig it up and you don't spray some Roundup or something on it to get rid of it? It's not very long before weeds take over your whole garden. And this is what happens in Christianity. This is what happens when true preachers of the gospel stop preaching. They make a... They allow others to make a mockery of the true gospel of Christ. And in another metaphor from weeds, if you let a false prophet go, then they multiply like rabbits. And in still a third metaphor, what we have to do is play whack-a-mole with those teachers. Every time that one pops up, hit him in the head and drive him back down. And so we have to keep saying these things over and over again, even if those moles that pop up are the most popular preachers of the day. The ones that have the biggest audience are the ones that need to have the most said about them, don't they? They need to be stopped. Well, the good news is this, and I'll I'll close with this today, that Christ has promised that the true church will prevail. You don't have to worry about this, that false prophets are going to run the church off the planet. That's not going to happen. The true church of the Lord Jesus Christ will prevail. The gospel cannot be stopped. And so somewhere, in some place, you're going to find a preacher that still stands for the truth. You're going to find a church that still stands for the truth. And you know, those of you that have looked, you know that you have to search long and hard and keep looking and keep digging until you find one. It might even be sad to say, but you might even have to move to get close to one. But I'd have to ask people, what is the most important thing in this life? Isn't the most important thing the things of God? Isn't the most important thing about where you're going to spend eternity, where your family is going to spend eternity? Isn't the most important thing what's done for Jesus Christ? So I think that God expects us to do this. He expects us to find a place where We can worship God in spirit and in truth. And it can be done. Well, here here is the truth of the whole matter. This is the real truth, is that Jesus is the only one that can save you. If you will repent of your sins and put your faith in him, then he'll forgive you of your sins. If you put your confidence in him and you remove all the confidence that you have in yourself, Jesus will save you. That's the gospel. That, that, that's the gospel. Repent of your sins, trust Jesus Christ, put all of your confidence in him, and he will save you. And that's the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me God. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today, and we thank you that we have truth to speak. We thank you for Jesus Christ who gave us this example. We thank you for the apostles who lived the example. We thank you that the truth has been passed down for now these 2,000 years, that it hasn't gone away, that as you promised there would be a true church and there would be real preachers of the gospel and they can be found and they can be distinguished and they stand apart from those who preach a false gospel. Lord, we pray that you might help us to be in the place where the truth is being taught, that we might stand for it and wherever we might be, 
to just put our lot in with those who treat, teach the true gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, for someone here today who doesn't know you as Savior. Maybe they've been looking at other ways. They've been listening to other preachers. They have their confidence in the TV preacher and think that he's telling them the truth. They're always searching, always searching, but they still know there's something not quite right. Still something wrong, still no satisfaction, no fulfillment in what they've heard. Lord, I pray that you'd help them today to turn to the absolute truth of Jesus Christ and who he is and put all focus on him. Lord, we pray for anyone here today, Christians. We pray to be drawn close to you. We pray to be in the place where you'd have us to be. Lord, we just ask for your help. We ask for your grace and your mercy to be upon us. And may we give our whole lives to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.